0: want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to be, but ought to go. There are a million quotes on leadership. This one stood out to me because it has good ideas around intention and vision. Now, I'm not hugely versed in leadership theory, but we know that there are a ton of books and a ton of ideas out there to explain how and why different people become leaders in life. I want to highlight some of them to get you thinking about what you think makes a good leader. Here are just a few types. First of all, there's the great man, or as I say, the great person theory. A person is born with what it takes to lead. You can't learn it. Either you're born with it or you're not. Here's another one, trait theory. People have certain traits that make them a better leader than other people, maybe confidence or integrity or communication. Here's another one, situational. Leaders choose the best course of action based on the situation that they find themselves in. They're able to flex, they're able to say, well, this takes a little more democracy or this takes some more of a firm hand. They understand what's appropriate. Behavioral theory. Great leaders are made, not born. This is the flip of the great person theory, that people learn to be a leader through teaching and observation. Then there are people who have management styles. The role of supervision and organization and group performance are important. This is maybe more about rewards and punishment and that kind of system. Relational theories would say, you know, you can't really lead without people who are following you. So there's a connection there. You need to inspire them and uh, motivate them so that they can see the higher goal and the bigger task ahead. Then there's servant leadership. This was coined uh, in 1970 by Robert Greenleaf. And this says, you know, a person should choose to be a servant first before they are a leader they should focus primarily on the growth and the well-being of the people and the communities to which they belong. Now, what do you think? What do you th- why do you think leaders are made? Leadership is a key component in how the world moves forward. In business and in families and institutions and nations and the church, leadership is how systems go well or not. Wherever people live or gather together, leadership matters. With a strong and wise leader, we see how crucial moments or pressure-filled decisions become opportunity to bring much-needed change on multiple levels. And while the different theories are helpful, often it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what happened that created the catalyst where something changed for the better when exactly a leader is made. The passage we read today shows how Samuel was a positive force in a situation where he was a key leader. The last time we left him, he was still a young boy. And now he is older. He is a leader in Israel. And people are looking to him for wisdom and strength and guidance and decisiveness. And while the culture and the time and the context are completely different than today... I want us to look at what Samuel did to lead the people of God so that we can understand what leadership is and be reminded about what he did to lead the people where they needed to be. If we are people who lead or we are people who are led, which all of us should be, right? This is an instructive passage for all of us to think more deeply about the process. God is here to speak to us. so Let's listen to his Holy Spirit. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel Seven, Jesus, we look to you as the one whom we follow and serve. Give us your heart and mind as we think about this passage. God, may there be truth for us today. So much has happened since last we were in chapter three, and it's important to briefly go over the narrative as a context before we continue. Chapters 4 through 6 in 1 Samuel are considered a unit, meaning that it's an entire story about the Ark of the Covenant, so I want to begin there. Much of what we know about the Ark may come from Indiana Jones, so we want to look to Scripture and see what it says. Now, the Ark was one of the most significant symbols of faith for the Israelites. Moses was commanded to make it exactly as God specified, which is detailed in Exodus 25. And inside the Ark were to be the tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and a jar of manna. More importantly, the Ark was God's presence abiding among the people of Israel through, through, through sacrifice, Through battle and travel and guidance, the ark was God with them. We know Jesus as our incarnate God. Here his presence was manifest through the ark. In chapter 4, we read that the Philistines wanted war. So Israel says, okay, and they go out to battle with them. And they were trounced by the Philistines. They were troubled by this. So the leaders decide to bring the ark into the battle with them. Alongside the sons of Eli, the priest. And the Israelites cheer when the ark arrive. And the Philistines are terrified because they've heard what God did in Egypt to his enemies. Yet they fought. And after that, Israel was defeated even worse this time. And the ark was captured and taken to Philistine territory. There's no explanation given for this. It's a dire situation. When Eli the priest hears about this... He drops dead. And when his daughter-in-law hears the news, she is giving birth. And she says something prophetic. She says how the glory has departed now from Israel. And then she too dies. Chapter 5 describes how God's presence of the ark causes havoc among the Philistines. The Philistine people place the ark in a house with their god Dagon. And after the first night, Dagon is found face down in front of the ark of the Lord. The people prop him back up, but this after the second night, they come back in and they again find him face down in front of the Ark of the Lord, but this time without head or hands. Eventually, the Philistines keep moving the Ark around because uh, God, who is free and quite uh, the subject of this story, uh, is causing panic and chaos wherever he goes. In chapter 6, we see that after seven months of chaos, the Philistines decide they can't take it anymore, and they're going to send the ark without a person straight back into Israel. And so they devise this elaborate plan to send a gold uh, guilt offering from every town where the ark was placed, and they use cows who have just given birth to transport it as a way of determining whether or not the power of God was real, because they're still not sure, That they believe that the power of God is real through this box, or whether it was just a box. So they send it down the road unattended except for these cows, and the cows don't turn back to their calves. They don't turn to the right or to the left. They take the ark straight back to the people of God. And this is where we pick up the story 20 years later. So in this passage, I just want to briefly talk about six actions of a good leader that Samuel exhibits. And as we talk about them, think about uh, the things that we talked about in terms of theories of uh, leadership. Action number one. Here we go. Leaders speak the truth. In uh, verse three, Samuel tells the people what they need to do in order to fully return to the Lord. The Lord has come back by himself unattended, back into their territory so what is it that the people of the lord are going to do will they trust in him will they submit to his will now speaking the truth is one of the biggest components of being a leader if a person is unwilling or unable to say the difficult awkward obvious and painful truths that they see they're not leading. without honesty there's confusion There's resentment as people try and figure out what is going on and what should we do and where do we stand. And Samuel gives them a choice and reminds them, you still have the Philistines to fight. You're going to be defeated? Are you going to win? If you're going to return to the Lord, he says, here is what must happen. His willingness to say the truth gets everything going. Action number two. Leaders point people back to their shared values. Here Samuel is saying what everyone knows is true, what God has told them from the beginning, that all the foreign gods have to be put away. Astartes and Baal are the deities of fertility, common to the cultures around them. And he is reminding them, you are not simply a product of the culture around you. You belong to God. This is the first commandment. Don't have any other gods before me. He tells them straight that they have to be abolished. If you want to return to the Lord, your hearts have to fully belong to God. There can't be any other worship or distraction or dabbling with anything that would take your heart someplace else. Now this is a good word for the Israelites and Samuel is also leading us here too. Is your heart fully belonging to God? Is there anything in your life which comes before the Lord? We live in a culture where we could choose to connect our hearts in lots of different places. Since Samuel is speaking also to a gathered people, we would consider if we as a church are fully centered on God. Do we allow programs or human ideals or social action or love for anything else to take the place of worshiping him first? You see, whether our hearts belong to God primarily is the most important question we will ever ask ourselves. Action three. Leaders exhibit qualities that cause others to follow them. Now, this is an obvious point, but you're not a leader if nobody follows you. If you're expecting that people are going to be coming behind you and you go down a path and you turn around and nobody is there, you need to think about that. In the book uh, Strength-Based Leadership by Roth and Kanji, they talk about how easy it is for leaders to misunderstand what is needed for people to follow them. In a study from 2008, they sampled more than 10,000 people and respondents were asked to use their own words to define how leaders made a difference to them. And this research showed that there were four qualities, like hands, like above all of the other qualities of leadership. There were four that leaders needed to have before other people would follow them trust, compassion, stability, hope. We might expect great visionary. Able to influence others. Nope. Now I was thinking about this because I was uh, reading a little bit of um, Spurgeon, who was uh, an influential British preacher from the 1800s. And he says, you know, where was Samuel in those 20 years? Like, where was that guy? What was he doing? And here's what he says. Here's what I think. He said, I think Samuel was going from place to place, preaching in quiet spots wherever he could gather an audience warning people of their sin and stirring them up to seek Jehovah, thus endeavoring to infuse some spirituality into their national life. In other words, Samuel was building trust, meeting people with compassion, being a stable voice and giving them the hope of God. No wonder people followed him because they knew his character and that he cared for. Action number four, leaders inspire people to make a different choice. Here we see the influence. The people repent. Samuel gives them reason. He tells them, God is real. He's going to deliver you. Samuel's able to get them to a place of not simply believing in God and saying, yeah, I believe. I believe in God. But he gets them to come to a place where they change their behavior. They orient their lives around God. How often do we want God to help us? And we're not willing to change our minds. We're not willing to change our behavior. We're not willing to change our will to his. Samuel leads a nation to make the right choice to go back to the Lord. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't push his own agenda. He doesn't bully them. He's acting on behalf of the living God who wants his children to put him first. So they fast and they pray. They confess their sin. It says he judges them, which means that he advises them. He gives them counsel. He is their pastor. Ministry happens through relationship. The best leadership happens through relationship. And we see that Samuel must have had a wide reach with the people to influence them to make such a drastic change. Action five. Leaders stay when difficulty comes. So the Israelites trust Samuel. And then when the Philistines see that they're gathered together, they think, oh, no, they don't think, oh, those are worshiping people. They think, oh, those are fighting people. They're going to attack us. They totally misread it. So they decide to attack and then Israel freaks out. But you know what? Their repentance holds. They go to Samuel and they say, please help us. And Samuel stays right with them, right in the fray. And he prays for them. They say, please help. Plead for, plead to God, cry out to God. The author Walter Brueggemann says that here we see the cry and response nature of our relationship with God. That we cry out because we are helpless, and God answers us. Sometimes with groanings too deep for words. We don't have that kind of power. Only God does. This kind of prayer is seen all over the Bible and the Psalms and. Even with Jesus in the garden before his death, Yahweh is attentive to the cry of his people. and He delivers them. God delivers us in so many different ways. Here it's from enemies. There's all different kinds of enemies that we might have in our life. God protects us. Action six, last one. Leaders help people remember what God has done. So Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up and he names the stone Ebenezer, which is kind of a funny thing, but Ebenezer means my help comes from God, stone of help. And Pastor Eugene Peterson says something meaningful about this. He says, the life of faith is never only a matter of the soul, nor is it ever merely circumstantial. The interior and the exterior are always impinging and affecting each other. Samuel's marking the time when the inside and the outside of Israel were in harmony. And how much we wish for that in our lives. We wish that that were more of a constant. And Peterson says, when those moments arrive for you, when you've been obedient, when you have prayed, when the Lord has given you victory or delivered you, stop. Mark that place. When when your soul is in alignment with your circumstance, Stop and acknowledge God's help. Samuel's showing us the way of humility here. We give praise for his saving action. God raises up leaders in all kinds of ways to operate his power for the benefit of the world. So many different ways. There's not just one way. Remember the cart that was led by the cows with no one on it. God's going to do what God's going to do. But he wants to empower us and use us and use us as leaders and use us as people who follow him. He raised up Samuel for his purposes because God is the ultimate leader who guides us in his paths so that we can help others to trust him. Samuel is a great example of a servant leader who uses everything he is to minister to those who need God's help. But the truth of the matter is the best leaders are those who are the best followers. What kind of a follower are you? Reluctant, responsive, grumbling, hopeful. The best leaders are the best followers who humble themselves before the Lord and lead through him. I want to end with a quote from John Stott, which I love. Anglican priest and author. The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power, but love, not force, but example, not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. Amen. May we be humble people wherever we are called to lead. And may we be joyful followers. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.